The first of my posts was a focus summary of Part 6, Chapters 6 and 7. Svidrigailov spends the evening going from one haunt to another, treating Katya and the organ grinder, deciding a dispute among some clerks about to break into a fight, paying for the stolen object they were arguing over, and never drinking a drop of wine. It is a dark and stifling evening that eventually breaks into a storm. Drenched to the skin, he goes home, stuffs all his money in his pockets, tears up some papers, and visits Sonia. He finds her at home with the Kapernaumov children, who run from him in terror. He tells Sonia that he may be going away, to America. He assures her that her brother and sisters are provided for, and he gives her the receipts. Then he offers her three thousand roubles, so that she need not go on living in the old way. She thanks him for his charitableness, but says she does not need the money. He insists that she take it, because Raskolnikov has only two choices, a bullet in the brain or Siberia. And if he chooses the latter, she will need money so that she can follow him. Giving the money to her is the same as giving it to him. He tells her that if she is questioned, she is to say nothing about it. Sonia jumps up in dismay and asks how he can be going out in such rain. He laughs at the idea of going to America and being stopped by rain. Next, he stops at the home of his betrothed, where he is met by her and her parents. He informs them that he has to leave Petersburg for some important affairs, and he has come to make her a wedding present of 15,000 roubles. It is received with the glowing gratitude and tears of her mother, while the girl looks at him with childish curiosity and dumb inquiry. He goes off, and the mother eases their concerns by saying these high-society men are eccentric. Most of all, she says, they must lock up the money and not say a word about it, particularly to that old cat, Madame Raslik. Svidrigailov crosses a bridge back to the mainland, staring at the black waters of the little Neva with special interest. He stumbles along the dark street until he finds what he is looking for, a hotel housed in a long, blackened wooden building. He goes in and asks the ragged fellow who meets him for a room. He asks the man to bring him tea and veal and nothing else. Left in the room, he lights the candle and looks around at the low-pitched ceiling, stained chair, and shabby paper. He sinks down on the bed in thought, when he hears a voice from the next room. He gets up to peep through a crack in the wall and sees two men. One of them, standing in the pose of an orator, calls the other a beggar and says the finger of providence sees all. The accused looks up at him with sheepish and befogged eyes. On the table is a nearly empty bottle of vodka. Svidrigailov sits back down on the bed. The ragged man brings his tea and veal, and though he drinks the tea to warm himself, Svidrigailov cannot eat anything. He feels feverish and annoyed, and he thinks to himself that it would have been better to be well for the occasion. He lies in the room in a reverie. He hears a mouse scratching in the corner, 
and the sound of the trees in the storm gives him a horrid feeling. He pictures the bridge over the little Neva, and thinks to himself that he has never liked water, even in a landscape. Then he is amused that he would consider matters of comfort and taste for such an occasion. He reflects on his conversation with Raskolnikov, and thinks that perhaps some day Raskolnikov will be a successful rogue when he gets over his nonsense. But for now, Raskolnikov is too eager for life. He cannot sleep, and Dunya's image rises before him. He reflects on the fact that he has never hated anyone, never desired revenge, never even lost his temper, and he considers it a bad sign. He thinks that perhaps Dunya would have made a new man out of him, and then he sees the image of her lowering the revolver, making herself entirely vulnerable to him, and he recalls the pang of pity in his heart. Finally dozing off, he feels something run over his arm under the bedclothes. Standing up and lighting the candle, he shakes the bedclothes and a mouse jumps out. He tries to catch it, but it darts back under his shirt. And then he trembles and wakes up. Wrapping himself in a blanket, he thinks it would be better not to sleep. But as incoherent scraps of thought and images pass through his mind, he sinks again into drowsiness. He dwells on the images he craves, of a garden on a bright warm day, by an English cottage. He approaches the cottage staircase, carpeted with rich rugs, and climbs to the high drawing room, where everywhere there are flowers. And in the middle of the room is a coffin, within which lies a girl in a white muslin dress, her hair wet, roses on her head, looking as though cast in marble. Svidrigailov knows her. She is fourteen, her heart was broken. She drowned herself after having been crushed by an insult that, quote, appalled and amazed that childish soul, unquote. Svidrigailov recovers consciousness and goes to the window. It is dark as a cellar and still raining. A cannon boom signals that the river is overflowing. He realizes that it will soon be light, and he resolves to go straight to the park. He goes out in the corridor to look for the attendant and pay for the room, and there he sees a little girl, no more than five years old, shivering and crying. Questioning the child, he learns that she had run away from her mother after breaking a cup, fearing that she would be beaten. He takes her in his arms and brings her back to his room, where he undresses her and wraps her in a blanket. After she falls asleep, he is annoyed with himself for taking the trouble. He raises the blanket to look at the child, and her face appears feverish. Then she opens her eyes and looks at him with the shameless, provocative expression of a French harlot. He is horrified to see such nastiness in the face of a child, and he moves to strike her. But at that moment, he wakes up. He discovers that he is still in bed, still wrapped in the same blanket. And it is daylight. He takes a notebook out of his pocket and writes a few lines. 
the notebook and the revolver lying on the table beside him. He begins mindlessly catching at the flies that hover over his veal. Then, becoming aware of what he is doing, he gets up and walks resolutely out of the room. A mist hangs over the town. There is no one in the street, and the houses look dirty and dejected. A dog shivers with its tail between its legs. A man lies on the pavement, face down, dead drunk. He approaches the gates of a big house with a tower, guarded by a man in a soldier's coat with a copper Achilles hat and a drowsy, indifferent expression. The two men stare at each other without speaking, until the man asks Svidrigailov what he wants there. Svidrigailov says he is going to America, takes out the revolver, and cocks it. The man says this is no place for such jokes, but Svidrigailov says it is a good place, and he tells the man, when he is asked, simply to say that he was going to America. He puts the revolver to his right temple and pulls the trigger. That same day, Raskolnikov goes to Bakaleyev's house to see his mother and sister. He walks with lagging steps, doubting whether to go on, but the decision is made, and nothing could turn him back. He is soaked and dirty, his face distorted by fatigue. The door is opened by his mother, who is speechless with joy and surprise. She begs him not to be angry with her for her foolish tears. She comments on his muddy clothes, and then stops herself, saying she has learned not to question him. She says that she has been reading his article, and that it solved the mystery. She now understands that he is a learned person, always hatching new ideas, and that she mustn't worry him. He asks her to show him the article, and for only a moment he feels the bittersweet sensation of seeing himself for the first time in print. Then, recalling the preceding months, he flings it on the table in disgust. His mother says that she now sees that Rodia will soon be one of the leading men of Russian thought, and she scorns the despicable creatures who thought him mad, and marvels that she worried over how he was living. She says that she does not often see Dunya, since she seems to have some secrets of late, but she promises to tell her he came. She begs him to come when he can, but she promises to be patient. She begins to cry and apologizes again. Raskolnikov asks whether she will always love him, no matter what she is told, and in distress she asks what is the matter with him, and insists that whatever she was told she would not believe. He says that he has come to tell her that he loves her more than himself, and she embraces him, weeping. She says that she has long seen a great sorrow in store for him, she asks if he is going away somewhere, and he says he is. She says that she and Dunya will come, and that Sonia can come too, and she will look upon her as a daughter. He says goodbye, and she cries, What? Today? Raskolnikov asks her to pray for him. His heart is softened, and he kneels down and kisses her feet. They both weep, embracing, and she does not question him. She says that he is now as he was when he was little, 
when he would run to her and kiss her. She asks him pleadingly if he is going away today, and he says he is not, and that he will come again. She asks if he is going far, and he says he is going very far, and to pray for him. She looks at him in terror, and he begins to regret that he came. He tears himself away and goes home. Opening the door, he sees Dunya sitting there alone, her eyes fixed on him with horror and grief. She says that she waited for him all day at Sonia's, and she asks where he was all night. He says he doesn't remember. He had wanted to end it all, and she thanks God he didn't. He tells her that he doesn't understand, he hasn't any faith, and yet he asks their mother to pray for him. She is horror-stricken that he had gone to her, fearing that he told her the truth. He says that he didn't, but that he fears she already knows, since she heard Dunya talking in her sleep. He tells her it was only pride that kept him from killing himself, and he asks her with a sinister smile if she thinks it was not pride, but fear. She tells him bitterly to hush. Suddenly, he stands and says he is going to give himself up. She throws her arms around him and says he is half expiating his crime by facing his suffering. In fury, he denies it was a crime, declaring that all he did was kill a vile, noxious insect. Dunya cries out in despair. He justifies his deed as that of a benefactor of mankind, and says that if he had succeeded, he would have been crowned with glory. But since he failed, he is trapped. He says he is further than ever from seeing what he did as a crime. He tells her goodbye, orders her to look out for their mother, whom he fears will die of anxiety, and asks her not to cry about him. He promises to be an honest man, and says that maybe some day he will make a name. He then goes to a table and takes from the pages of a dusty book a portrait of the landlady's daughter, kisses it, and gives it to her. He says that he had confided all his plans to her, and that she was as much opposed to them as Dunya. He goes to consent to his suffering, but he says he does not understand the necessity of it. They both go out and walk their separate ways. They turn and their eyes meet, and he gestures her away with vexation, acknowledging to himself that this angry gesture was wicked of him. He thinks to himself that he does not deserve their love, that if he had been alone and never loved anyone, none of this would have happened. And he looks around him at the men in the streets and sees all of them as scoundrels and criminals. He wonders whether twenty years of bondage will humble him as water wears out a stone.